Please be advised that the following podcast contains elements of strong language and themes which may not be appropriate for sensitive listeners and younger listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Hey listener, I thought I was the only one who took a little bit of a walk this time of night. It's late, you know. You should be in bed. Why am I up? Well, I'm pretty good at sneaking out. (laughs) Why, yes, you are. How was your week? Coping? I know it's hard, but you have to persevere. You have to. I know you don't see much of me. I've been moved to different classes now. Apparently I need more of a different type of class. But enough of that. You know what? I sneak out here just to take in the quietness and the darkness and the sounds. It's weird, I know. And yes, I know I said that sometimes the darkness can be a bad thing. But I sometimes I come here and look and think about my life. Listener. Have you made mistakes before? (laughs) What am I asking? You have. Everyone has. There is no one person who is perfect. But yes, mistakes. Sometimes it's something we can learn from and grow. But other times, other times can be detrimental to a person. Life can be strange that way. Hmm. Let me tell you the story. It's rather unusual, but it might be of use to you, or at least have some kind of moral. But whatever. Just stay and listen. Hi, my name is Emily Manson. And on the off chance that anyone should find this, I've made a terrible mistake. I've done something I never should have, and I've dragged everyone else into it. Now, we're both dead. It feels like such a cliche, this writing down my life story as my final moments tick away. It's like I'm in a bad horror movie or something. But it's not as if I've got much else to do, sitting here with nothing but an iPad, the clothes on my back. You ask, why don't you do something with the last few hours instead of just sitting there? If you've got an iPad, why don't you call someone? But there's literally nothing else to do. Believe me, I've tried. It's far, far too late for that. And I guarantee you, there's no service here. Also, 
As I sat here, I was kind of filled with the sort of dread that no one else would know who we were or where we'd gone. We'd just be two more suicides, strange and inexplicable ones, certainly, but numbers on a spreadsheet nonetheless. I mean, we're probably going to end up as that anyway. But I'd like to think that someone, somehow, will find this and tell the world. Improbable doesn't mean impossible. Anyway, I suppose I should get on with it before it's too late. Like I said, my name is Emily Manson. I'm 17 years old and I can astrogate. All right, I just came up with that word off the top of my head. I'll just call it hopping, but that'd look even worse. At least astrogating looks professional, like the faster than light drive in a science movie but I'm getting distracted again. I'm nervous. I always ramble when I'm nervous. Right, astrogating. I don't know how it works or what it is. It's just something I can do. I can visit other places with it. It's not teleporting because I stay where I used to be. It's not astral projection because I'm physically in both places. It's weird. Like I said, I don't know what it is. The first time it happened, I was five or six. We had a little house in suburbia and there was one of those little plastic slides in the backyard. I was on that, playing, and then suddenly the light went yellow. That was the first thing I remember, the light. The next thing I remember is looking up and out across this vast barren plain, the sky the colour of cheap mustard and vast, vast structures on the horizon. like. There weren't any mountains where I lived, but I knew that was the scale things were at. Gargantuan towers and domes and pyramids all around me, perfectly spaced, with these big black pillars or monoliths that reached up, up into the bizarre sky, in two rows on either side of me, reaching away towards a big black altar that was almost on the horizon. And beyond the pillars, marching on either side in a funeral perfection were the creatures. I don't know how to describe them. They were horrifying, to say the least. They were 30 feet high, even as hunched as they were, so their shoulders humped up above their heads. They wore long black cloaks that trailed on the ground, and under them were eight or ten long, long legs like a spider's, or one of those little house's centipedes. In front of the legs, under the shoulders, were four multi-jointed arms, long enough to almost reach the ground and tipped with hands that were simultaneously indescribable and fascinating. Their small heads looked like a horsefly's nightmare of death, and from them, like a horrible moustache, came two long ribbed hoses that plugged into complicated ports on what should have been their chests. In their front pairs of hands, each one carried a small object, held up before its face like an offering. It took me a second to realize that they were carrying unconscious, or worse, human beings. I was terrified. <laughs> Even now the memory scares me. My younger self was witless with fear. I watched, practically tasting my own heart as the ones at the distant front of the procession dropped the people they carried into a vast pit at the foot of the altar, then turned and disappeared to make room for the next.
I wish now I had turned around to see how far the line extended behind me, but all I could do then was stay still and hope they didn't notice me. They did, of course, or at least I assume that's what happened. It's not like I was trying to hide. I stood there watching them when I heard the sound from up ahead, a sort of high-pitched rustling or rattling. The creatures didn't stop their march, but there was something coming towards me, coming from the altar. It was a bright point of light, a miniature sun, a collection of shining polygons flying at me faster than I could comprehend. For the first time I screamed and felt a searing pain as it hit me, and I was on the slide again. I just sat there for a minute, trying to process what had just happened. It had not been a daydream, certainly, but what then? I had never experienced anything like that before. I slid down the slide and walked towards the house, intending to tell my mother and stop. I don't remember why. I think my childish mind thought I would get in trouble. I distinctly remember telling me not to go outside the yard, and whenever I had been, it was clearly that. Whatever the reason, I never did tell her. What I did do was draw a picture of it in class the next day. My kindergarten had a big set of art supplies on the table, and I vividly remembered sitting there on my knees, scribbling away with black and yellow crayons in hope of conveying the things I had seen. We had been doing a unit on the planets recently, and when I was finished, I took the thing and walked over to the teacher. Miss Harrison, what planet is this? Miss Harrison turned around. Miss Harrison, if you're reading this, thank you for everything, and said, it can be whichever one you want it to be, darling. But which one is it? I shouted. Miss Harrison knelt down in front of me. Shh, let's use our indoor voices. Which one do you think it is? I don't know. I went there yesterday. I thought you would know. She laughed. I'm afraid I don't know everything, darling. Why don't you run along and play? I did, leaving the picture with her. It was a long time before I saw it again. The next time it happened was when I was in second grade. I had done something to annoy the class bully. I think I called him a name during lunch, and he and a couple of his friends were chasing me across the schoolyard. I was flustered, and in my haste to get away, I ended up on top of the jungle gym. Funny how all of these early stories involve some kind of playground equipment. Odd. Anyway. The top of the jungle gym is a poor place to hide, and they basically surrounded the thing and climbed up on either side, with me stuck on top. One of them shouted something, and I freaked out even farther and closed my eyes. When I opened them, I was in deep space, and there was a starship. My mom had shown me Star Wars the day before the incident happened, and it's all tangled up in my mind with the image of a star destroyer sweeping over the camera. That was more or less what the scene in general looked like, except it was below me and spread out as far as I could see. It was black, dead black, spectrum absorbing black, and I couldn't really see it very well. But there was an impression of spheres like small planets, interconnected cylinders, and flat sheets as thin as paper and as wide as the world. On and on it swept down there, far too fast for anything that size to be moving. 
and it was then that I realized there were no stars in the sky, only dim, hazy masses that I realize now were distant galaxies. For about a minute, I hung there, unable to do anything but twitch and watch the immense ship fly past. Then suddenly, horribly, I realized I was asphyxiating. It wasn't a sudden return this time. My vision darkened as I struggled to desperately to fill my starving lungs. Minute after long minute I hung there as I felt my skin start to tense and my eyes start to cold boil. All and all the same time the spaceship went on and on and on and I thrashed and I gasped at nothing. And then I was back, back on the jungle gym with a boy on either side staring in shock. Gradually my senses returned and I realized there was shouting, alarm bells and one of the other boys running back with a teacher. And all the time I sat there on the jungle gym, exactly like the time two years before, trying to make up sense of what I had seen. The rest of the day was chaos. There were questions, of course, from the teachers, the principal, my mother, doctors and nurses. Had this happened before? Had I been unconscious? Did I remember anything? I tried to explain to them and the boys backed me up. They could be jerks sometimes but they weren't pure evil. They were Dudley Dursley sort of bullies that you go see in the movies and as far as they could tell they had just watched the girl die and come back to life. They weren't on my side I don't think. I think they were just scared of me. Despite all of that, the whole thing blew over pretty quickly. There had been what seemed to be a medical emergency, but I was fine now, and as far as the doctors could tell, there was nothing wrong with me. If they had done EM scans, they might have found something more interesting, but they didn't. Only my mother seriously remembered it. And after we got home from school that day, she questioned me more seriously, using big words like hallucinations and schizophrenia. I wanted to tell her about the first incident, but I couldn't bring myself to. I still had the idea that I was somehow guilty of something. Eventually, she let it go, telling me to tell her if it ever happened again. It didn't. For four years, Mom and I were driving back from a family visit. And had been delayed by a flat tire. It was two in the morning and I remember staring out the window at the stars, steady lights above the flickering trees. I don't remember what happened next very well. I was told that a drunk man had been driving the wrong way in the wrong lane and had hit the car, killing my, himself and my mom, but miraculously leaving me alive. All I remember is the sudden gut-wrenching howling of horns and mom screaming, and the visual scream of headlights in the front window. Then I was gone. When I awoke, it was still dark, and I was still in the forest. It was cold, really cold. And the spine tangles of alien trees reached for the sky like the Tower of Babel. All around me, snow shimmered in the brightest moonlight I've ever seen, and the path I stood on stretched on in either direction to the eerily close horizon. It took me a few minutes to think to look up. The moon was not a moon. In fact, I think I was on the moon, 
and the object above me was the planet, if you could call it a planet anymore. It was made of shining pale metal, and its surface was covered in dark labyrinth fractals like a circuit board built by madmen. All around it, smaller shapes of the same color darted and flickered like fish in a slow motion, each a complex assembly of polygons and blades, each tiny in comparison to the whole. The circle in the same intelligent way you see YouTube videos of flocks of starlings do, but they stayed in perfect symmetry the entire time. I was still watching when I heard the howling. It was the most familiar thing to happen to me in one of those alien environments, and despite what it meant, it felt almost comforting. It was the howling of wind, simultaneously high and low, building and approaching at terrible speed, and I found myself watching as the snow on the path ahead of me was caught up in a tidal wave, watched as the trees leaned away from it and then moved, retracting themselves down into armoured stumps. I watched as the storm grew bigger and bigger and bigger, looming up before me like a pale mountain. As I watched, mesmerised, I realised that I was going to die. I think that was the first time I consciously astrogated. I shut my eyes, ignored the cold, and my hair in my eyes and my jacket tearing itself from my back. I blocked out anything, focused on the car, and on the similar forest on a similar cold night, on the faraway blue dot I called home. And when I opened my eyes, I was there. Not in the car, mind. I was in the forest beside the road, watching the car drive by. I stood there and watched as the pickup swerved around the corner, headlights burning through the darkness. I heard Mom honk the horn, heard her screams and my own as the little blue Volkswagen crumpled like an unwanted letter in the pickup's grill. What I did next is something that haunts me to this day. I've done it again since, and sometimes it's been worse. But that first time, that stayed with me. I walked up the hill, climbed over what remained of the guardrail, and opened the passenger door. There, inside, was me. She had less snow in her hair, though she had blood to replace it. She wasn't dead, though. She was alive, though thankfully not conscious. And so I did what I had to do. I took her, hauled her bodily out of the wreckage, dragged her through the forest, and threw her into the barely liquid river. I didn't stay to watch. I was eleven. I just couldn't. But that water was frigid. She must have died in minutes. But her face, staring at me out of the water, stayed with me as I took the phone from the guy in the pickup's pocket and dialed 911. And if anyone ever found the body in the river, well, they can't be very well connected with the living girl who had miraculously survived an accident. Can they? Listener, it looks like we're going to have to cut this version short. I'll continue next time I see you. It just seems that I have to go. I can hear them walking around. They'll be pretty pissed at you too. Just typical of them to fucking go and look around while I'm getting to the good part of the story. I know you want to hear the rest, but we don't have time.
I must get back and so do you. We'll talk again, dear listener. Keep well. Hey all, it's Wings here. I would like to thank Stalker Shrike for allowing the storyteller to narrate the story. You can find more works on his page, which is listed in the, in the show notes. Join us next week for a continuation of the story and find out exactly what happens. Till next time, keep safe.